invite you to open up to our scripture passage uh, for today. And uh, we're continuing on the, in the Ten Commandments. We're looking at the Seventh Commandment, uh, which is Exodus 20, verse 14. So Exodus 20, verse 14. And it says simply, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Uh, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we look at this very short and yet heavy command, uh, one that has affected so many of us in so many different ways, and we pray that your truth would shine clearly as we deal with this heavy topic, that you would convict us of our sins, but show us even more the beauty and the grace of Christ who did not let us go, even though we've been unfaithful to him. Father, build us up in Christ Jesus through the power of your word. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, just as a disclaimer, if you didn't figure it out, we are dealing with the seventh commandment, which we just read, and that acknowledges uh, the existence of sex. Uh, and my kids will be sitting in the sermon in the next service, uh, my parents are sitting in this service, so this isn't awkward for me at all. <laughs> uh, but I say all of this with uh, that everything I'm going to say in the sermon is in mind with kids uh, being present. Uh, I'm not going to dance around some of the issues, but also treat them with some sensitivity and, and respect, knowing that my and other kids are present. But if for any reason, if you have some kids here and, and maybe you wouldn't want them uh, to, to, you know, open Pandora's box in this way, you can take him back to stepping stones or even hang out in the, uh, you know, in the hallway or whatever, but just want to make sure you're aware of that. Also, I know that this sin has deeply affected um, probably more than we would even realize in our congregation. And it has deeply affected some of you, uh, or the fact that it has affected you so deeply is a testament to why this command is needed. Sex is never just about sex, but it actually pulls at strings that run deep into our soul. And so I would be happy to talk to anyone more if this is something that you've been affected with or need to talk to someone about, and be happy to do that. Well, I want you to imagine with me you're a woodworker, and you take, you find a beautiful slab of black walnut, and then another slab of sugar maple, and you smooth them down, plane them, sand them, and stain them to create two beautiful on their own cutting boards. Now you could also, though, take those two pieces of wood and plane them and sand them, but then also add a tongue and groove joint so that you press them together to make one cutting board. And the contrast of the two woods makes that board all the more beautiful as you look at the grain, the unique grain of each one and the contrast in the colors. But once you've joined them, if you try in some way to pull those two pieces of wood apart, they will splinter and crack and maybe even break. You can't make two things one and then think you can separate them without doing any kind of damage. And that is what this command is getting at. That is the effect of adultery, a splintering, a breaking of two people, two bodies that have become one, and now are broken apart. 
we're in the second series working through the book of Exodus. We've called this section the gift of the law. Because remember, God's law isn't just his report card for deciding how much he's going to like you, but it is a blueprint for his beautiful community. And what he shows us here with this command is his design that the, the marriage commitment is something that is beautiful and should not be taken lightly. That in his community, marriage is something that is beautiful and shouldn't be taken lightly. And what I want you to remember this morning is just this. Marriage is two becoming one. Marriage is two becoming one. And we're going to look at this under three headings. First, the foundation of marriage. Then second, about adultery. And then third, the fulfillment of marriage. So first, the foundation. In order to understand why God takes adultery so seriously, we need to understand, well, what is marriage? And to do that, let's start in Genesis 2, verses 23 to 25. The man said, looking at Eve, this is now bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife. And they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God created woman out of man. That On one hand, she shared the same flesh as Adam, she came from him. The flesh of Eve was originally one with Adam, but then God took that flesh out and created a new living being, Eve, out of it. And then don't miss the next part there. That is why, it's giving us a, a causal statement. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. That in one sense, marriage is reuniting this flesh that was originally separated. And then it continues, and they become one flesh. But it's more than that. It's not just putting the rib back in Adam that God took out, but it is a complementary rejoining of these two fleshes. Look earlier to verse 18 uh, in Genesis. The Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. So God took something from Adam to create something new that would then complement Adam in a way that could not happen if Adam just stayed by himself in creation. Adam needed a suitable helper. And that word for helper can be used in a bunch of different ways throughout Scripture. It can be just used in a very basic way that the king might ask for help in attacking a mutual enemy. When Israel was oppressed by others around her, the Scripture said that Israel had no helper. But maybe the most common way that word is used is to describe what the Lord does for his people. He is their ultimate helper. Psalm 33, verse 20. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Or Psalm 109, verse 26. Help, same word, me. Lord, my God, save me according to your unfailing love. So when God said man needed a suitable helper, he's seen, saying that man needs someone who compliments him, supports him, aids him in similar ways to how maybe God would even aid and support his people. And marriage is when you take these two unique, beautifully unique pieces of like wood and press them together into one to construct something that is even more beautiful. And, and there's various things that this two becoming one means, but one of the key aspects of it is in the fleshly carnal sense that man and women, men and women, fit together in sexual union, that in that way the two become one. 
And very practically, in that way, Eve is a suitable helper for Adam. Because in order for Adam to fulfill God's command back in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, well, that's not some, Adam couldn't make babies on his own. He needed a suitable helper for that. A, a butterfly, a dog, an elephant, a giraffe, none of those things could help with Adam's task to multiply and fill the earth. And not just any human would do. Another man would not do, but it took a woman, one that Adam could be one with, and then fill the earth with others as God had commanded. And so this means that sexual union is not to be taken lightly. See, it's the very means by which Adam and Eve fulfilled God's mandate for them. It was one of the ways in which they would reflect the God who made them. Think of it, God is a God who created the world and everything in it, but then above and beyond that, God is a God who created creatures who bear his image, men and women. And then God gifted Adam and Eve not just the ability to be creators like him, but the ability to create new life in their image, like God had done. He gives humans one of the highest honors and ways in which they can be like God. And what a privilege it is that God would give us, humans, the responsibility of being able, with one man and one woman, to create something that is eternal, a new life, a soul, a baby, that is made in our image. Hey, just had a, a baby recently born. We got a couple more on the way. And when you hold that new baby, that little tiny boy or girl, and you just feel the wonder of it, like, how did we create this beautiful little girl? And the only way to create that new life is through the union of a man and a woman, where each contributes something of themselves, and there's this intimacy and wonder and excitement in it. And so we need to start with this foundation of sexual intimacy in order to understand why is adultery one of the Ten Commandments, because sex is not just about how it feels. It's intimately tied to what it does, what it creates. And because of what it creates, God's given a, a great feeling to it to match the wonder of what is going on. But because of sin, today we flipped that pyramid. That instead of saying that the goal of sex is in line with God's goal of filling the earth, well, that the, now the goal of sex is just simply a feeling. It's about it feels good, and so everybody should be able to experience that feeling. And it doesn't matter how you get it. As long as it feels good, do it. That would be the, the primary idea of what sex is today in our culture. If it feels good, does it? do it. It doesn't matter who or what you do it with. Everyone should be able to do it. But we see that the biblical view of sex is in the service of God. It's one of the ways in which you image him. It's one of the ways in which we fulfill that command that God gave Adam and Eve to fill the earth. So going back to Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. If you think of the implications of that, it means that two becoming one, well, there's an exclusivity to it. Like those two boards pressed into one, it is a union that cannot be made or separated without something being broken and trying to separate it. 
And this makes sense. If sex is more than just feelings, but one of the intimate ways in which we reflect who God is, then breaking that union cannot be done cleanly. You're always going to leave something behind. And so for as much as our, our culture wants to talk about sex and say, well, if it feels good, do it. Nobody can actually live that way. We have so many people with the scars and the wounds of trying to live that way. And even if we're afraid to, 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 to say it these days, you cannot become one with someone sexually without giving a piece of you to them. You've become one with them. And you can't then move on to someone else without damage being done. And so that's the foundation of marriage. Well, now let's look at adultery in our second point. Because marriage is instituted by God, when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, that promise that you don't just make to your spouse, but it's actually a promise made in the sight of God, because God has ordained marriage. And so then if you break that promise by being unfaithful in your marriage, you're not just breaking a promise to your spouse, but you're actually breaking a promise that you made before God. Strictly speaking, adultery, from a biblical point of view, is, is simply when you enter into a sexual union outside of the person that you made that promise to initially. Now, it's not technically adultery when, say, you sleep with someone before you get married to them. But in the view of Scripture, you know what happens if you were to do that? You've essentially married them. And why? Well, it's very simple. You've become one with them. It, but it, it's kind of like you signed the contract, but you didn't read the fine print. Right? This isn't just you know, doing something for fun. You're actually becoming one with this person that will have consequences for the rest of your life. And that is why the marriage covenant, the promise, the vows that you make on your wedding day are important. They are like the wrapping of sexual union to protect the power of what is happening here. It's not just that Christians want to hide sex, but because God made sex powerful, it's where you actually reflect the power of God to create new life. That power should not be taken lightly. It's why the Old Testament says that if two people sleep together before that marriage commitment, they are required to marry in general because they've become married in the flesh. They've done what, what, what is this one essential aspect of marriage, and now it's say, okay, well, let's make sure we put the right protections and promises around that for the sake and the safety of each person involved. Now, the father of the woman who is in this relationship can refuse to allow the marriage. You aren't required to make up for one mistake by making another mistake and entering into a marriage that would not be good. But scripture says that man is still required to pay the family to represent what he took from their daughter. And additionally, then Jesus deepens this command, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, it's interesting, Jesus focuses really here on men, because this is an area where men, it seems like in general, struggle much more. And I'll be talking about that some as we move on. Now, when we hear Jesus' words, we need to distinguish between actions and thoughts. Both are sinful, but they are dealt with in different ways. 
So we can think of adultery or really any other sin out there as part of a spectrum, that the root of it is the sin of adultery, but on the one end of the spectrum is entertaining the thought, looking at a woman lustfully, and at the other end of the spectrum is, say, repeatedly entering into an affair without any remorse. And this means that those sinful thoughts, while harmful enough, sinful enough to separate us from God for eternity, they have a different effect on us and those around us than when you actually act out on it. There's perhaps a, you know, different amounts of collateral damage. But committing the act always starts with the thought. It gains a foothold in the heart. That's why Jesus is so concerned that we put those thoughts to death before that seed starts to grow into rotten fruit. So on one hand, you know, sometimes you hear people say, young couples say, well, you know, we've already already thought lustfully about it, we've gone this far, well, why don't just go all the way? That would be a more serious sin. You've got to cut sin off, not just let it grow because you've let it grow a little bit. It's like a weed. The longer you let it grow, the harder it is to pull it out. So deal with it as soon as you can. But on the other hand, you can be married and say, oh, I would never actually do something, but you're always kind of tiptoeing around that line of lustful thoughts. I mean, but it's fun to flirt a little bit with this person at the office or this friend down the street or enjoy a few extra looks at her or to fantasize about her. I mean, I never do anything, but you harbor those thoughts in your mind, in your heart. But if you spend too much time flirting with the line, maybe never even do anything, you're hardening your conscience in a way that maybe you never actually act out on it, but you find yourself on this slow and easy path the loss of your soul, because it's become so hardened, and you've become numb to your sin. Pornography ties into this. It is adultery that is in the heart. And maybe you think it doesn't affect anyone. Well, no one knows about it. I've got to control. I just have to do this. I know it's wrong, but at least I'm not actually committing adultery. And yet you don't realize that in your own heart you've become dull to the evil of it. And you might not think it isn't affecting anyone, but it is affecting your heart. And it's negatively affecting your spouse or your future spouse in the way that you think of her, the way that you treat her, the way that you view her. Jay Dalma, in his helpful analysis of the Ten Commandments, has this good insight. He says, it's also possible to commit adultery when we view our partner just as a sexual object. You're not becoming one with that person. You're just using that person to fulfill your own needs. Almost doesn't matter who the person is. They've just become this living doll for your own pleasure. Not something that's for the good of both of you. Because go back to the foundation of marriage. It's not primarily about the pleasure. That's a nice benefit. It's about being united to another person who complements you, that is mutually beneficial so that you image God. If you are forcing your wife to have sex or putting such pressure on her that she cannot refuse without repercussions, you're sinning against her. You aren't treating her as a complementary partner, but just a toy for pleasure. Maybe you have different sex drives. And the way that you work through that isn't by forcing the other person to do what you want, but through self-denial. Loving service, 
Maybe that is your eternal thorn in the flesh and a reliance that God's grace will be sufficient for you as you seek to love this person and decrease so that you can help them increase. It's not through beating down your spouse or making them feel all kinds of pressure to take care of your needs. It's also worth noting in this that we've got to marry a fellow believer. Let's think of it very practically. If marriage is two, a man and woman becoming one with each other, and then becoming a Christian is you becoming one with Christ, you cannot become one with a non-believer at the same time and be one with Christ. You're going to have your heart pulled in two opposing directions. And just ask anybody who, say, became a Christian after they got married, but their spouse didn't, or maybe their spouse rejected the faith after they got married, but they've kept it. And I guarantee none of those people, we have several in this church, would say, oh yeah, that's made my life easier. None of them would say that. They would say, there's a hundred ways in which that difference has made my life harder. And it hurts so much. Kathy Keller describes it so well. She, she says, this is what she's seen in, in the many years of her ministry at the church, in her church. Either the marriage experiences stress and it breaks up, or it experiences stress and it stays together. And achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. You cannot be married to an unbeliever. And finally, we note that marriage is until death do us part. It's not eternal, but it is for a lifetime. And ideally, all marriages would last for a lifetime. In fact, divorce is never required by God. But God does acknowledge that sometimes that sin of adultery, it so splinters your heart, like those two boards that were once joined, that sometimes dissolving the marriage is the least bad choice for the sake of caring for those who have been wounded by it. And Scripture makes clear divorce should not be entered into lightly. There's only a few things that God gives in a concession for, adultery being the primary one. Another one, if you become a Christian and your unbelieving spouse isn't and cannot accept that, they're allowed to separate. John Calvin and others believe included in this. Scripture allows an allowance for divorce for desertion. Forms of abuse would also often fit under that. You've deserted your wife or your husband if you're abusing them. And then this brings us then to the third point, the fulfillment of marriage. I want to bring in a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 5. Verse, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Paul here is drawing this connection between two people becoming one in marriage and is relating that to two becoming one in Christ and his church. And then picking up on verse 31 in Ephesians 5, Paul quotes from Genesis 2.24, which I read. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, and this is a profound mystery. Now, when you're first married, do you think of this? Oh, yes, this is such a mystery. What does it mean? 
for two to become one. And on your wedding day, that idea makes your heart flutter. I can't wait to be one with this person. And then on day eight of your marriage, you realize that two things can never become one with generating a lot of friction. And sometimes it even blows up. But then Paul adds, when he's talking about this, he's saying, I'm not actually primarily talking about a man and a woman. I'm actually talking about Christ in the church. Paul is saying something profound here. That when God spoke those words in Genesis 2.24, how many ever thousands of years ago, and he was looking at Adam and Eve, but he was actually looking past Adam and Eve to Christ's wedding that he was waiting for. That every marriage on this earth is a momentary reflection of the ultimate marriage, the one marriage that lasts for eternity. And that is why even if you're never married in this life, well, maybe you've missed the shadow, but you will not miss what the shadow points to. It's why even if you die a virgin, you've missed out on a sample of what that union is about, but you haven't missed out on the essence of what that union points to. You get to be united to Christ, what sex is only a shadow of. When two people say, I do, if you remember back to your wedding day, or maybe you're looking forward to your wedding day, and you don't think that when you stand there and say, I do, that there's a lot of fine print that comes with it. And that fine print is, this person, I am going to open myself up to this person in a way that would allow them to really hurt me. Because you cannot unite yourself with another person without allowing yourself to get close enough to that person that they can hurt you in the ways that will maybe hurt the most. It's why some of you can never get close to anyone again. Because you don't know if you can allow yourself to be hurt in that way. It's why adultery hurts so much. Right? If someone, an enemy was attacking you, you could understand it. But when the one that you've said, I do to, and exposed your heart and soul to, wounds you, you know, all the armor is off and they can go right to your heart. And it's why God gives us the option of divorce. Because sometimes the hurt and the wounding of breaking that promise runs so deep that God looks at it and says, that's enough. You can be free from this commitment. But friends, God did not give himself the option of divorce when it came to his people. Now remember what Paul says, when he was looking at Adam and Eve in that first marriage, he was with another eye looking to what that first marriage was pointing to. And he said, I will never let you go, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much it costs me. I will not let my people go. Often in Scripture, you can see God describes or compares his people's actions to spiritual adultery. When they're worshiping other gods, when they aren't giving their heart to the Lord. And this isn't just God being melodramatic to say how much it hurts him, but think of it. If Genesis 2.24 was, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, if, if God instituted marriage with the marriage of Christ and his church in mind, it means that when God wrote, do not commit adultery in Exodus 20, he didn't write it as someone who had never experienced the pain of that, but as someone who would experience the pain of it 
over and over and over again because every one of us has been unfaithful to him. And yet he would never let us go, no matter how much it hurt. And listen to these parts of Psalm 22. This is, I think, describing the heart of Christ as he suffers for the unfaithfulness of his people. I mean, tell me, is this not the cry of someone who's experienced the most intimate of betrayals? It says, my life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. Maybe that ex- describes how you felt. But it certainly describes what Christ felt for our unfaithfulness. But Jesus didn't walk away. He didn't let go. He didn't say, I'll get divorced. I'm done with you guys. And when your sin so pierced his heart, when he was on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of this person's sin. He didn't let go. He didn't say, this hurts too much. He held on until it took him down to the grave so that he could have you and you could be free from the sin that sent him there. Brothers and sisters, do you see the grace of Christ and his love for you? And will you let that melt the hardness of your heart and the ways in which you become numb to sin and even numb to sexual sins? Whether lust or pornography or just too much flirting with this other person. God has loved us so much, and he got so close to us that he has allowed us to pierce the very heart of Jesus, that our sins have betrayed the very intimacy that we have with him. But he will not let us go. Maybe you failed big time in this way. Maybe you've gone and and committed adultery, maybe multiple times. Or you've just been harboring these sinful thoughts and fantasizing about it with a casualness. But don't you see, his grace is more than your sin, and he will not let you go, no matter how catastrophic your failure. He can heal you from the wounds of sexual sin, because he himself bears the wounds of our unfaithfulness. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of this unfaithfulness, and you've had your heart broken by another. And perhaps it has hurt you so much that you don't know if you could love again. But what a friend you have in Jesus because he knows your pain. He knows how much it hurts. And in his forgiveness, you can find forgiveness. But you've got to look at him in faith and repentance. If you continue to harden your heart, if you refuse to acknowledge your own sin and your need of him, you may not be his. If you're more worked up about other sins than your own, you may not have actually tasted his grace. Will you, will I, will all of us humble ourselves? Stop looking at how everyone else messed up and to say, Jesus, my unfaithfulness to you is greater than maybe what anyone else has done to me. And thank you for loving me and not letting me go. So now please forgive and heal me so I can be used by you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us, O Lord. Convict us of our sin 
so that none of us would be deceived. And in that conviction, drive us onto our knees to the grace of Christ Jesus, who will not let us go. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.